Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Welcome to the fifth episode in this new season of Between the Lines. My name is Martin Gregg and this is my conversation with Daniel Gray about the sports writing legend Hugh McIlvanny. In particular, Hugh's piece on the death of Jock Steen. Headline that worshipped by his people, it appeared in The Observer on September the 15th, 1985, just five days after Steen's death. Daniel is something of an expert on Hugh McIlvanny and hosted a sold-out reading workshop at the Edinburgh International Book Festival in 2019. Here he talks about the impact of the piece and the legend of McIlvanny. Pretty straightforward first question, why out of all Hugh McIlvanny's pieces did you choose this one? The introduction, the first paragraph itself brings me to tears still now, the, the gravity of the writing, the power of the writing, the larcenous nature of death, its habit of breaking in on us when we are least prepared and stealing the irreplaceable. It grabbed me all his writing grabs you. It's very hard to choose, but that piece still grabs me like the first time I read it, which was some years after I was only three when this happened. And it still does, and it just moves me so much. It is so crafted. The sentences are long, and yet somehow there's an economy of language in this article, as in a lot of his writing. And then it loops back round with use of the word burglarised in the third paragraph. So this image of the, the way death steals, you just, you, from the very start, you're gripped you're gone, you're in, he's giving you goosebumps. I can hear his voice reading it as I read it myself. Wish I could speak like that, wish I had that voice. It's a thing of wonderful power and beauty. And from that start of the language of being there, of taking you to Ninian Park, of putting you in the press room where they think Jock might be okay, to the realisation that he's died, then going through the reactions in Cardiff of the Scotland fans who had travelled there to watch the match in which Scotland had just about qualified for the Mexico World Cup so his final achievement I suppose and then goes back through the great man's life and career and covers all those great touchstones of of Lanarkshire and everything else that of course Hugh McIlvanny knew so well himself and that's another reason an extra layer to the article is this is McIlvanny's own world that he's writing about. I think it's interesting that you alight on the introduction I think when I messaged you to ask about what piece and you kind of texted me the first four or five mm. words and I immediately knew what you were talking about yeah. and I don't know the introduction to every Hugh McIlvanny piece but I know this one Yeah. and there's something about that larcenous nature of death there's something about that word choice yeah. larcenous yeah. which it's, it's a powerful word without being pretentious I think it conveys the sort of you know the anger and unfairness that you feel mm. when somebody's taken from you before their time I think it's just so perfect and you, you wonder you read all these accounts of how long Hugh took over his columns, whether it was staying up all Saturday night to get every, not even every word right, every letter, every uh, piece of punctuation and and all of the rest right. You wonder how long he thought about that, because you're absolutely right. 
it's not, you don't even feel like he's getting away with a long word. It's just the right word in the right place. I've hardly ever seen it anywhere else. And yet it, yeah, doesn't, it doesn't stand out like a sore thumb, like he's showing off because he's, he's so intelligent. And again, burglarized, which we perhaps yeah. think of as being American now, just perfection, really. And, 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 and added to that, the fact it's one of his friends he's writing about, that's to keep your head and write in that way when you're probably... Probably crying onto the page almost. No, it's a fascinating word, Larsonist, but it made me think about kind of word choice. Maybe writers tend to kind of get stuff down and they move on, and, and but that process of reflection, which you obviously had, but going back and challenging, what is the right word here? What is mm. the right word here? Now, maybe that came to him naturally, but from what the stories we hear about him, it seems that there was an incredible level of reflection went into these particular word choices. Mm. Yeah, this is a craftsman, isn't it? Just always waiting for the right tool. A master craftsman must use the right tool, the right material, and he's waiting for this, whether it comes to him straight away, as you say, or he's feeling around. I'd love to have known. Did he come up with the the first lines last? They're so brilliant that, you, you know, you imagine that concentration on a word, on a paragraph, on getting the right analogy, simile or whatever, or metaphor, has probably gone to, to a great extent from writing. You look at a modern football writer has to file his first match report just as the game ends so it goes live. Hugh, as well as being born brilliant at writing, had the advantage of having those few days. You mentioned the five days there of being a Sunday newspaper writer, having a couple of days to write these wonderfully reflective pieces full of the passion of the heat of the moment, but also that reflection, which therefore I guess allowed one to think about words like larcenous and burglarised. It's, it's interesting, when I was reading that again this morning, it's almost like he's moving through the stages of grief because mm. of the kind of initial denial. They're all gathered, you know, in the stand at Ninian Park and they're thinking, it'll be all right, mm. it's fine, you know. And then the word comes back, that, no, 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 wait a minute, this is really grave. And then th- there's a great line, he says, we felt almost guilty about having allowed ourselves to be comforted by the rumours that that he was okay. Then abruptly we knew for sure that, that the big man was dead and for some of us it was indeed as if our spirits, our very lives had been burglarised. So it's quite quite interesting that kind of initial period of denial mm-hmm. and you know it, it seemed to just capture something that, that maybe we've all felt at some point that you yeah. think I'll be okay and it, it's not okay. That, that very human reaction added into that that Jock Steen must have seemed seemed immortal, and he, you know he quotes Shankly saying, "Jock, you're immortal." And to them, he must have seen that. He also writes, of course, in the piece that Jock Steen had had a terrible car accident some years before and already had a, a heart attack. As as indeed, yeah, the stages of grief. You write because he begins then to reflect on the recent past and then go back into the the distant past of his his life and career. And I think that's the point as well, that this is a piece of journalism. I mean, although he's writing about a friend, essentially, it kind of stands up as a a piece of journalism in terms of an obituary, I Mm. suppose. If somebody's reading this who is vaguely familiar of who Jockstein is, it stands as a piece of writing. He's he's nothing self-indulgent about this. He's making sure that he's got the building blocks down of this is this man's life but as well as injecting the personal elements into it. Yeah, it's an amazing thing. He never really goes for the, let me tell you about the time I was with Jock. You know, they must have been together so many times, and uh, although Jock didn't drink, but they must have spent uh, sociable times together, but it doesn't really go into that. It keeps it on a, a level that you too will be familiar with, and, you know, he never alienates anyone. And he achieves the usual Hugh McIlvany thing of giving sports writing the status it truly deserves, which is the same status as writing on any other genre. 
I think one thing I probably love about Hugh McIlvany is the fact that in some ways he writes like a, an American sports writer and giving, giving sport that platform it deserves and in his use of language but at the same time being aware that it's just one of those great distractions and in the end matters so much and doesn't matter at all. And there's a lot of kind of social and political elements to the piece as well because he reflects on Steen's upbringing as, as a minor. He does get quite political because he mm. talks about the new right yeah. um, and how this erosion of community, this kind of wave mm. of Thatcherism, I guess, which is engulfing Britain at this time. So it's quite an interesting looking it, it, at through it, that prism. It really is. To take you to 85, so just after the, two years after the second election of Margaret Thatcher and uh, McIlvany's own politics shining through and the shared politics of many people in Lanarkshire, such as Steen, McIlvany and the rest. And it's brilliant to see that context applied to the way in which Steen's politics weren't doctrinaire, they weren't about Leninism or Marxism, but they were about everyone working for each other, which mm. typified so much of that generation of Scott and of many Northeastern Englishmen and, and, and women and, and things like that. But the, he, he really sums up how Steen applied the principles learned beneath the ground of working for each other as miners into his football teams. But I like that that's not just a gritty thing about working hard together. He reflects the fact that Steen's teams, like Shankly's, always had a bit of flair in them. They always had a, a, a cheeky glint in their eye. And that's a brilliant thing. We can, we can typify the, the, the staunch socialist and trade union uh, doctrinaire sort of lifestyle, but this is it warm. This is warm socialism applied to a football team, and it always has a, a bit of a glint in its eye, as, as the teams did that Steen was manager of. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Before we continue with this episode of Between the Lines, I want to tell you about two books from Backpage that you might be interested in. Firstly, Pep City, The Making of a Super Team by Lou Martin and Paul Ballas, two Spanish sports writers who have been embedded with Manchester City since Pep Guardiola arrived in the summer of 2016. No other journalist has had this kind of access and the result is a behind-the-scenes account of how Guardiola's winning machine was built and what it takes to keep it on the road. This features exclusive interviews with everyone from Pep and the strategists on the board to the superstar players who won all there is to win in English football last season. 
And if you're interested in what the next level in the football arms race might look like, check out Astro Ball, The New Way to Win It All by Ben Reiter, who has appeared in this series of Between the Lines, interviewed by Neil about this book. Even if you don't speak baseball, if you're interested in where any pro sport, and especially elite football, is heading in terms of recruitment, data and optimization, then you need to read this inside account of how the worst team in baseball were turned into serial winners thanks to a strategic revolution. It's Moneyball, the next chapter. Pep City, the making of a super team, and Astro Ball, the new way to win it all, out now from Backpage. Um, one of the things that always interests me about Michael Vanny's pieces is the the kind of balance between personal reflection and also um, his use of quotes, um, mm. which is a, a kind of interesting trope in American sports writing where very often the, the writer soaks up the quotes from the interviewee and kind of write, writes them into their own voice. Uh, and I really like that style. But it means when they, they do use quotes that you kind of you sit up in your chair and you think, wait a minute, what's, what's coming here? And I was really struck by the quotes he chooses to use here because he talks about I went down the pit when I was 16 and when I left 11 years later I knew that wherever I went whatever work I did I'd never be alongside better men they just didn't get their own work done and go away they, they all stayed around until every man had finished what he had to do everything was cleared up of course in the bad or dangerous times that was even more true it was a place where phonies and cheats couldn't survive for long down there for eight hours you're away from god's fresh air and sunshine there's nothing that can compensate for that there's nothing as dark as the darkness down a pit the blackness closes in on you if your lamp goes out you think you would see some kind of shapes but you can see nothing nothing but the inside of your head i think everybody should go down the pit at least once to learn what darkness is i mean wow absolutely wow and again you can see that the application of that idea in in Steen's teams really and never ever left him that mining background and the fact McIlvany referred to the fact that it was 26 or 27 when Jock Steen finally left mining for good in a few different pieces because that's quite something you know to become a footballer at Albion Rovers at the age that we now consider to be when a footballer is at his peak um, was when he just he came out of the mine full time and so when it winds back into those many different Scotlands and Lanarkshires and Britons of the, of the, the spread of history, on, on one page he manages to sum up this spread of history from being down the mine and the opposite page you know, of, of Thatcherism to bring it into the, the, the modern through to the glories. But there are forgotten things in the piece. I think you know, the, mm -hmm. the achievements of Steen at Dunfermlin and the fact he was the first Protestant manager of Celtic is mentioned as well, which still has a gravity now, of course. Yeah, there's a wonderful line about that where he's talking about he emerged as Celtic's first non-Catholic manager. He became a living, eloquent rebuke to the generations of bigotry surrounding the Rangers-Celtic rivalry. This, this is another brilliant part of the article is the lines that will stick out to you like that as applicable so many years on. One of the things that struck me as well was the, the final paragraph. He, he's got this thing about fantastic introductions and he manages to find his way out of articles very beautifully and he's talking about the pain of his death from a heart attack dug deepest into his wife Jean and into Ray and George, the attractive strong-minded daughter and son of whom he was so proud. But there were many others in many places who felt last week that they did not have to go down a pit to know what real darkness was. Incredible and if you've not got goosebumps or a tear in your eye when your eyes have rolled to the end of that piece then you're probably not alive because I remember the first time reading that one not not you, you, you're aware with the uh, 
he is a genius, really was a genius, with the, 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 he's going to hook back to another part of the piece. Will it be the start? Will it be back to the theme of theft and larcenary? But it's to hook back to the mine again, devastating. Yeah. It's interesting, you, you were talking about doing this um, workshop at the Edinburgh Festival about and uh, kind of looking at some of his writing, but you were saying you played some audio clips, and it, mm. it's really interesting that because as you read a Hugh McIlvany piece, there's something about hearing his voice at the yeah. same time, isn't there? I think very few writers achieve that. Yeah. It's, you know, actors achieve it, and uh, to an extent musicians achieve it. You've been able to hear their voice when you read their words or lyrics, but he's one of any, very few writers who is possible, once you've tuned into his voice, once you've been on YouTube and, and listened in, BBC uh, inter- set series of interviews with him, then you can hear these words in his voice, and it adds another layer of richness that I'm just immensely jealous to be born that talented and hard working and also have a voice like that as well is completely unfair on the rest of us yeah how did you come to his writings and this piece in particular was it just something you discovered uh, as you were developing as a sports writer no I remember exactly uh, about 1995 goal magazine the time there was 442 there was goal there was a number of 90 minutes and shoot obviously as well and Gold Magazine would give away three short versions of books and they did a, few, a short version of McIlvany on football with a picture of Cantona attacking the Matthew Simmons oh, Crystal yeah. Palace right. fan. And I remember picking that up as a 13 or 14 year old and being amazed that anyone could write about football like this because I'd never read anything. And I, I dare say at that age I certainly didn't get the power of a lot of the language and things. I was no, I was no genius. But to understand that football could be written about in this way was a watershed for me and so I still have that little volume what a brilliant thing for a football magazine with Les Ferdinand on the cover in his Newcastle kit to give away a book like that that's that's a that's a that's a sort of a civic duty they've performed there absolutely I always think it's a bit of a shame that we have this kind of collection of his writings, McIlvany on football, published by Mainstream Sport. There's McIlvany in boxing, McIlvany in horse racing, I think, so it did become a series. Um, I know he, he obviously ghosted Sir Alex Ferguson's, mm. um, I was going to say first autobiography, but I don't know if it was, but it's the, <laughs> yeah. certainly the, the, yeah. the one that stands out probably above all others. I always think it's a wee bit of a shame that he didn't develop more of his writing in book form. It's a, a real mystery isn't it? I guess if, you, if you're writing a long piece every week you would question whether there was time and being across so many sports and equally as wonderful if not better in, in boxing and things. I, but I have wondered that I did when I was researching the Edinburgh Book Festival event I thought well there must be something I've missed, there must be more than the column collections, grateful as I am that they exist and, and no that's, you know, you'd think he would want to do something about one subject or mm. I don't know there doesn't seem to be much of an ego that's not something you mm. read about him ever you read about him being argumentative and uh, <laughs> these different words that come up and you wouldn't really want to be a sub-editor or anything but that's a mystery and I, I feel sad about it but he's left this rich volume and yeah. it's interesting you mention mainstream sport because when I look back at my bookshelf, so many of my books are from mainstream mm. sport. And yeah, they were they were they were good for us, weren't they? Really for us. Yeah, well, the, I mean, my first book was published by by mainstream, and they, they actually went out of existence probably about five years ago, yeah. now, maybe. So they carried on for a long time. But yeah, I think they brought a lot of great um, American sports writing yeah. across as well. I remember some. George Kimball books and things like that. So, yeah, I kind of, you know, a proud tradition. It's great that a, a Scottish publisher published McIlvany in yeah. football, you know, yes. something. George Kim- 
Yeah, George Kimball's George Kimball, this is the book Kings, that was given to, some of his words were given to Hugh McIlvanney, weren't they, early in his career when he was, he was reporting on all sorts of things. And of course, McIlvanney went back to that. He, he reported on the Troubles in Northern Ireland and won an award mm. for, you know, drifting between subjects with that same power. And so that book helped him to realise, I think, that sports writing was on a par with any other writing. Not that you'd know it in, in newspapers and bookshops and all of the rest. Mm. In the same way that I think McIlvanney has now done that for lots of us. Yeah. I mean, it's nice to think of, of McIlvanney kind of echoing through the generations, and you were talking about this Edinburgh Festival event. Like, tell us a little bit about that. You take us into that room. Was it well attended? What did people get from it? What was the feedback from the audience? Yeah, well, they sold out within two hours, I think, and that had nothing to do with me and everything to do with the great man, and I felt very daunted being asked to speak about him. It wasn't my choice. They came to me. And so these are just small events of about 20 people who sit around in a circle. I, I wrote an essay effectively about his life to give it some biography, but the highlight was we listened to clips of him reading his own pieces. And it, isn't, it wasn't one of those events where you're worried how you're going to get through the hour and a half. People were talking from the word go. They wanted to pass their own reminiscences, talk about their own favourite pieces, talk about the times they'd met him, talk about him and Willie, his brother, mm. and remembering them as pals together and... and um, uh, it, there was this extraordinary warmth that I, I find hard to imagine for most... Well, what did he call himself? A reporter rather than a journalist or writer, I think. Yeah. The moments of goosebumps and tears were certainly there. And the most brilliant thing that I, I can never know what he would have thought, the great man up there on his uh, typewriter in the sky, was that four of the people at the session, it was on a Saturday afternoon, left early to go to the Hibs versus St. Johnston game. <laughs> Any other event, I would have thought, oh. yeah. but I thought this is great that they're leaving early to go to the match. You would certainly <laughs> approve. Fantastic. That's a good place to leave it. Thank you very much, Daniel. Thank you. Thanks to Daniel for agreeing to this interview. Follow him on Twitter at D underscore Gray underscore writer and at DanielGrayWriter.com. And check out some of his own brilliant books, including Black Boots and Football Pinks and Saturday 3pm. The first four episodes of this season feature interviews with Ben Writer, Oliver Kay, Lawrence Donegan and Andy Mitten. Next week's episode is another McIlvanny tribute, my conversation with Hugh McDonald about McIlvanny's seminal piece on the boxer Johnny Owen. Finally, if you've enjoyed this, please leave a review, tell a friend, spread the word. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.